0: You have to look at your complete change management initiative and you have to get people inspired to change. People need a reason to change. Shocking principle, right? Not rocket science. When you're asking them to get uncomfortable and approach conversations, they have to be bought into that. There needs to be rewards and recognition aligned to it, measurement coaching aligned to it. The managers have to be expert in providing truthful, specific, constructive feedback and role modeling it. And that's where the work is, where I think a lot of companies, they blame the trainer because that's the easy scapegoat, because it wasn't my fault.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Julie Thomas. And Julie is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Julie is president and CEO at Value Selling Associates. My other guests for today's episode include Mark Roberts. Mark is the CEO at OTB Solutions and also making his big podcast debut. Mitchell Kaspershik. Mitchell is strategic account manager at Compile. Now, one listener note before we jump into today's discussion, this podcast is devoted to helping sellers differentiate how they sell by the experiences they deliver to their buyers. My book, Sell Without Selling Out, is the definitive guidebook for sellers to learn how to win more deals by differentiating how they sell. Check it out on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. It's available in paperback, digital and audio versions. Okay, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Episode of the Win right Podcast with Andy Paul. I'm your host, and joining me today, another all-star panel. I'm going to give people a chance to introduce themselves. Julie, why don't we start with you?
0: Well, hey, Andy, great to be here. Um, my name is Julie Thomas. I'm the CEO of Value Selling Associates. We're a business-to-business sales methodology firm that works with the organizations that are working to upskill their sales professionals to improve their productivity their ability to qualify dance, and impose more deals thrilled to be here today.
1: Excellent. Okay. And for those of you who are watching the video, see Julie's got a row of trophies behind her head, uh, not by accident. They're in camera I, I thought maybe they were Emmys to begin with, but Julie, tell us about your trophies.
0: So we've been involved with the Stevie awards for a number of years. And the Stevie awards has a award ceremony. It is like the Emmys or the Oscars or the Tonys or the Grammys, your, your uh, award ceremony of choice, but for sales and customer service professionals. So a few of those awards, we've actually value selling has been recognized itself. Our podcast has been recognized as a social selling initiative as one of those awards, but we nominate a large number of our customers every year and a number of those awards are because we're so successful at nominating our customers. We get what's called a grand Stevie because our our nominations are so successful. So it's a nice benefit that we love to add for our clients.
1: Okay. So Mark, on to you. Hi, I'm Mark Roberts. I'm the
2: CEO of OTB Solutions. I just published another book driving explosive growth. And what I've done for about 37 years now is help companies grow really fast. I tell people if they want to grow three to 5%, I'm probably not the guy you want to double, triple, quadruple your business. That's what I do. All right. Um, the way I do it is with data. And then kind of like Julie, I assess your team, figure out if there's any skills gaps, and then we train and coach your team to be able to go out and execute your strategic plan.
1: Got it. Okay. And you said your company name was OTB OTB out of the box solutions out of the box solution. Okay. Bye. I, see. I hear, I hear well, OTB, most, I think off track betting, but yes,
2: yes. No, that's not me. And, but what I'm most known for is if you Google fixed sales problems, yeah. my website's number one in the world. It's called no smoke
3: and mirrors. Got it. Okay. Mitchell. Thank you, Andy. My name is Mitchell Kasperzik. And my path has been quite unconventional, starting as an opera singer and then transitioning into the world of sales. And along this journey, selling for services and software companies, I didn't start my career as a natural born salesperson, if there is such a thing. I'm probably more reserved and shy than nine out of 10 B2B sales professionals. But after a year in sales with acceptable but not outstanding results my wife recognizing that i had uh, a competitive uh, streak and the insatiable curiosity encouraged me as any wife might to channel that energy into activities and behaviors that could bring us economic benefit so so i became (laughs) utterly consumed with learning everything useful about sales and the underlying psychology and since making that shift i've consistently ranked at the top or near the top of the leaderboards in the last few companies i've worked great. for still a work in progress
1: as we all are right this is let's say this is my year in sales and yes constantly learning so always learning always learning well uh, to that end let's lead off with this question. and yeah in your mind says individual contributors yourself and as managers what makes someone a great seller julie we'll start with you
0: oh wow that's a great question i think There's a couple of traits that I think are really critical for great sellers today. And one of them is for sure curiosity because selling isn't just telling it's being genuinely interested in what makes your prospect and your prospects organization tick and how you can serve them with the products and services that you represent. So curiosity is certainly one of those things. There's, And then there's a couple of other traits that I think I look for when I'm hiring people. One of them is I look for resilience because I've been in sales for a long time too. And um, if you're the type of personality that goes down in the dumps when things don't work out or you get an obstacle, you're going to be crushed as a sales professional because it's hard to pick yourself back up and you're never going to win them all. So. That resilience is really important. And then I'm looking for, and I waffled between these two things, something that I call the quick study and the figure it out factor. I want yeah. people that are resourceful, that will figure it out, not just throw their hands up and say, oh, I didn't get it or I didn't win it. Like, let me try a different door that, oh, the front door was locked. Let me see if the side door is open. And so I want that quick study, resourceful, figured out factor in the people that I'm looking for.
1: Yeah, someone that doesn't need a recipe.
0: No, you can have a high-level recipe, but we know that the customers change the ingredients all the time. So if you're expecting to get everything lined up, no two sales, in my opinion, have ever been identical. So exactly. So you've got to have enough wherewithal that you can know the key components that you need to have in work and then this customer is a little bit different. How am I going to get there in a different way? So that, that curiosity yeah. helps you understand that. The resourcefulness helps you figure it out.
1: Well, I think a key element of acumen for salespeople is not recognizing how one customer is like yet another customer, but recognizing how they're different from another customer. And it's in the difference where the opportunities lie. If you're Paying attention. So,
0: well, I uh, agree. Yes. yes,
1: Yeah. All right, Mark, what do you think? What I've observed,
2: obviously, is creative problem solving. They act as a consultant, not as a rep. That famous book, Trusted Advisor, is out there where they take a genuine interest. We call it worthy intent. I, there's an author out there, selling from the heart. He talks about commission. Larry breath. Levine. Yeah. And customers can smell commission breath a mile away. And if that's how you're approaching your customers today, you're not winning and you're not closing. So what the data tells us is they have resilience and grit. They have a high will to sell, which is when they wake up in the morning, they want to go sell. They have a high figure it out factor and they have situational awareness. Often we need to tune that skill up with maybe some disc training and personality training. But yeah, the top performers are always prospecting, always trying to work to grow even existing accounts. They never are idle and they're always trying to get stronger. I think the number is 79% of top performers use social selling, for example. It's new, they adapted and they're leveraging it.
1: Yeah, well, I I think that's, yes, that's a topic maybe if we have time we'll get into a little bit later. I just wanted to jump into people's perspectives on AI and how that will play, but I think that general is, yeah, good sellers adopt and adapt to the technological changes, excuse me, that that are coming down the pike and put them to use to help their buyers. Mitchell? I would
3: echo the sentiments of my colleagues here and add buyers want to deal with smart salespeople who have high EQ and high intent. And I think Mark, you spoke to that high intent and transparent motivations. Someone who is focused on directly helping solve the problems that they would be interested in solving and then being able to do that deep work with that client and create a vision of success.
1: Yeah. Well, interesting. Thinking back. And that's a great answer. And I thinking back to what Mark, you'd said is people that have the, you say, I guess you drive to sell or something you talked about, they wake up is it a drive to sell or is it a
2: drive to help? It's in my new book. I talk about serving others, not selling them. And if you wake up every day, wanting to help somebody, you're going to do very well in sales, if you have the skills, unfortunately, 50% of salespeople out there today have never been trained formally. So they're basically what I call doing random acts of sales every day. They're winging it. Buyers are speaking out. There was that study in Florida State, I believe it was. 85% of buyers said they expect a salesperson to connect what they're selling to how it'll impact their bottom line, the value. But only 14% of salespeople are. So there's a pretty big disconnect between what buyers are expecting and what salespeople are doing. I would also...
1: Is that a lack of training or is that... Cause believe me most salespeople that my experience have had some formal training, you just look at the numbers by distribution in terms of either win rates or quota attainment, buyer experience surveys. They're saying to your point before is, Hey, most of them fail miserably at this task of helping us make this decision. Even the ones that have been trained.
2: Well, what's fun is you don't have to guess you can assess, right? I think the number is 67% of salespeople never ask for the order. I just did an assessment for a hundred salespeople for a large pharmaceutical company on average, their team ranked 32 out of hundred in closing skills. So what's a closing skill? How do you approach the close? How did you follow the sales process naturally to a close? Did you understand all the objections and handle them or did you try to overcome them because that never works? Right. Mm -hmm. So again, it's kind of staggering when you look at some of these big companies They teach product, they teach application, but not sales skills, like how to have
3: a business conversation. Isn't it also true though, that many of the maybe challenges we have in the industry is that we are training and providing insights to sellers that are very prescriptive. Every seller is looking for the tactic for a situation and the tactic to get out of a situation when really at its core. Most of the true sales problems are head, heart, and soul. Problems of misalignment on what we're really doing together, buyer and seller. That's what I found, at least. We, I often find that the best salespeople are very conscious of creating that atmosphere of psychological safety so that the buyer can ultimately get to their chief aim. Without that, it's just uh, messy. It's a messy process because we're human and everything human is messy.
0: Well, I I think we've also created some problems that are rearing their head today. And it's this whole kind of SaaS revolution towards product-led growth. And if I can just get them into a demo, they'll fall in love with it and they'll sign up to buy. So so much of the trading that I see is on the what and not the how, to Mark's point, that they don't know how to tie it to business outcomes because they couldn't, many of them, couldn't have a business conversation if their life depended on it. They can talk tech, they can talk features, they can talk function, but they cannot tell you the why behind the buy of why that problem is even worth solving let alone how they're going to measure the the positive result of solving it. So I think it is, there is a lot of training out there, but I'm not sure we're always training on the right things. And is so- it good
2: training? Are you training to forget? Or are you training to remember? One and done training doesn't work. Go away to a weekend thing. let do death by PowerPoint. That's training designed to check a box. Well, the VP of sales wanted training. Okay, I did it it's not my problem. Well, it wasn't designed properly. I was really blessed. One of the companies I worked for was Timken Corporation. Mm -hmm. They're a $7 billion guy that makes bearings and a whole bunch of other stuff. And they sent me to Harvard to learn how adults learn. That's not how we learn, right? Training in my book, I mentioned sales training is a $17 billion business growing every year. And it's because a lot of it doesn't work. So you have to take it again. But it just, it's usually it, not it, the it, training. It's built, it's built that way, right? Well, it's how it's designed and rolled out. A big part of training is actually watching them do it. Watching a video is one thing, but as I tell people, you can't learn to ride a bike watching a video. There's application, you got to practice, you got to do it, you got to get your brain engaged. There's activity, and a, and a good training program is going to create that activity. And one of the best parts of training today is peer to peer. If you can facilitate peers telling peers what's working, you're gonna have a really good outcome from the, you're gonna get some ROI from the training. But again, I, I'm just shocked when I meet some of these very large companies, they do a fantastic job with product, application, as you mentioned, features and benefit. I call it feature and benefit bingo. They just start spewing features and benefits, hoping the sure. buyer will jump up and buy.
1: And now, a word from Cognizm. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's US dataset alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. Seven million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate, deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to cognism.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's cognism.com slash data sample. It's a question, though. So, okay, we've identified this as an issue, and this has come up many times on this podcast, my previous podcast, is where does this issue originate, right? Because yeah, I, I think it obviously starts way at the top when they just don't prioritize this. But at some point, if you're not listening to your customers, they're going to tell you the type of experience they're having with your sellers and it's going to be reflected in your win rates. that's going to be reflected in the growth of your business. And yeah, unfortunately, sort of like in the SaaS world, some of this has been masked just by sort of overall growth of the industry. But now as we are sort of this tech recession, companies are starting to feel that pinch. But larger issues. How do we change that culture so that training is not looked at as just some obligatory thing to do, but as said, look, this is essential to our
3: success as an organization to do this the right way. I think, Andy, you always talk about Jonah Berger's book, The Catalyst, and he mentions how 100% of people globally are persuasion reactant. And being someone who's worked for a few different companies with other salespeople, I think the problem might ultimately stem from a lot of us fall into a sales career. And because of that, you're going to see a disparate group of people, all with different levels of commitment to the profession and to their own careers. And because of that, any training is you're not going to train people who don't want to be trained at the end of the day. And if you show up and you can obviously be a better sales trainer than another one, more captivating, more inspiring, but you're not going to ultimately be able to transform that person unless they're willing and able to do the hard work that's required of them.
1: But is not some of the slideship is.
0: There's a complexity on top of what Mitchell just said. Number one, the crazy part about sales is I can do everything wrong and they can buy anyways. So, all of a sudden, everything that I've been told I shouldn't do is reinforced. And I'm kind of like, why do I even have to change? So, well, but maybe, maybe it wasn't wrong though. Maybe I got lucky. Maybe the person was the brother in law of my boss and, and they had bought from us three or four times before. And so, in that situation, I could skip some steps. And, but if I skip them the next time, I could get burned. So, I, but we do know sometimes people just buy in spite of the salesperson.
2: Oh, um, I think. Oh, absolutely. We'll I look think at the number of transactions. online. On
1: I think that's and, the majority and, of the times.
0: And the rest of it is what we're talking about is change. And training is always part of a change management initiative. But it's only a part of it. It's not all of it. And the rest of the part is where it's hard. It's how do we. It, and it's not a one and done. If it was one and done, or if I could just watch a video, shoot, my husband would be on the PGA tour right now because he <laughs> rarely misses a Sunday watching golf. But right. I promise you, it hasn't impacted his golf game. So it nor it, your relationship no, with him. No, no, a lot of things <laughs> it hasn't impacted. So you have to look at your complete change management initiative and you have to get people inspired. To to change. One of our principles in selling is people need a reason to change. Shocking principle, right? Not rocket mm-hmm. science. And the same is true of the sales professional. When you're asking them to get uncomfortable and approach conversations or prepare for conversations or execute meetings differently than they have in the past, they have to be bought into that. There needs to be rewards and recognition aligned to it measurement aligned to it, coaching aligned to it, the managers have to expect it and be expert in providing truthful, specific, constructive feedback and role modeling it. And that's where the work is, where I think a lot of companies short 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 it. And then they blame the trainer because that's the easy scapegoat because it wasn't my fault.
1: But no, you're right. Trainers are the scapegoats, easy scapegoats. But Yeah. You identified, I think are certainly a a big weak point, which is we don't train managers, right? As we have an expectation that somebody carries a title, they must know what they're doing. And hey, shockingly, they don't, right? It's not their fault. They haven't been trained. This whole issue of performance management, one I love to talk about is if we compare the way we manage or try to manage performance improvement in sales versus how it's done in other performance type professions, such as certain sports... Yeah, one is very scientific and very well thought out. And that's not the sales approach. And then sales is say, hey, let's just throw people into the pool and hope they figure it out.
0: But they have well, experience. And the
1: that is, we mentioned how
2: few salespeople are trained. Even fewer sales managers are trained. It's a whole different skill set to be a manager than it is to be a salesman. But what do most people do? They take their top performing salesperson, they ask them to kneel, they drop the sword on both shoulders, motors and say, Congratulations, now you're a sales manager, right? They never taught them coaching skills, coaching through a pipeline, holding people accountable, motivation, recruiting, right? I don't know if they assume that's going to
1: happen through osmosis, but it doesn't. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question talking about coaching. This is a topic I bring up fairly often on the show is what if we just don't expect managers to coach? What if we just hire coaches?
2: I think you'd get a huge, coaches. I think you'd get a huge uptick. If they followed a standard coaching methodology where people going into the experience know what to expect Mm -hmm. and they focus on improvement and not on like personality. Again, I'm a huge fan of coaching. It's one of the most scalable things you can do for your organization.
1: So, right. But what what if we just, what if we just, but I was saying, what if we just take coaching off of the managers? So the manager's job is, yeah, I'm to hire and improve our capacities and our capabilities to some degree, but comes to coaching people we've got this person on staff or these people on staff, they are trained, professional coaches, they're you know, more practiced at it, more skilled at it, more certified on it, educated on it. Let's let them coach our team. Cause then we get rid of the excuses of managers saying, I no longer have time to coach because I've got to fill out the reports for managers or whatever.
0: As long as you've got some alignment there, because at the end of the day, if the manager's doing both, they're wearing the hat that says, hey, deliver the plan, deliver the number, get the work done. That's the manager's job to get the work done on the team, right? The coach's job is to develop the people. And so you can separate those as long as there's alignment on how you get the work done is also how we're going to coach them to behave and do that. Because I have seen situations where the manager isn't bought into the methodology. They bring in a third-party coach And the manager says, just get out of that meeting as fast as you can, come with me, we'll do it my way. And now you've just increased the dysfunction tenfold. So there can be a role to separate that. How do I develop people from how do I get the work done? But at some point there's gotta be some really tight trust and relationship between those Mm -hmm. that everybody's working in the boat rowing in the same direction.
1: I think so, what, what if you changed the compensation plans for managers so that they had this incentive to <laughs> make sure they worked with the coaches?
0: Well, I, I think aligning rewards and recognition and composition and compensation to whatever you want them to do is key because we know that if they were the battlefield promotion that Mark alluded to, which many of them are, they are compensation focused and compensation will drive behavior. So don't give them a huge bonus to make the number and then don't care at all how they beat the horse to get there.
1: Yeah. I think that one of the ways you could address this is no managers don't like this idea, but I think it's for that reason, it's actually, it's a great one is we have this issue with relatively low number of sellers attaining quota is I think what you should do is say, look, managers, your variable compensation is going to be mostly based on your people making quota, meaning I'm going to give you a fixed fee for every seller on your team that hits quota. So if your variable comp as a manager, say for mathematical versus 100,000, you got 10 people on your team, I'm going to pay you $10,000 for each person on your team that hits quota. And I guarantee you overnight, managers start finding time to coach people, or they'd be very much aligned with, yeah, if you can help me any resources you can provide me to help me help these people hit quota, they'd be all over it.
3: I think there'd be some organizational reshuffling as well. Maybe some hiring and firing because on every team you'll see managers who they don't do a lot of coaching and I've had strong leaders and weak managers and the weak managers very often want to play Superman and jump in on all the calls of the weaker players on their team, which the, the top people on the team are like, please, I do not want you on these calls. If anything, you ruined it. Right. And, but, but the people who are not good at creating a connection with buyers, being curious, finding, identifying, and solving problems with the customer, they're like, great. I've got my manager to jump in here and do all the work for me. <laughs> and we'd see a big change. I think if the sales industry did move in that direction, Andy.
1: Well, what happens the manager wouldn't have time to jump on all the calls. They'd have to say, look, how do I be more efficient in the way we develop our individuals?
2: And and what I like, Andy, is you mentioned it earlier, sporting analogies, right? I used to uh, have some professional golfers in my men's group when I lived in Arizona. They all have coaches, right? If you want to really lose weight and get strong, you're going to hire a professional trainer, right? Why do we not do that in business? It's probably the most, the thing you spend most of your time in, right? And like I said, it's the most scalable thing you can do. If you're going to be the manager who jumps in and rides in on the white horse and saves the day, you're going to get burned out and exhausted and probably leave. Right. And your people are not going to learn the skills to, to actually do it on their own. So I, I think you're really onto something as far as improving the coaching skills. I've created courses to teach sales managers how to coach. And there's a couple industry groups where I speak and we're filling the rooms with these mid-level sales managers are like, I didn't know that there was a methodology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kind of shocking, isn't it? It's
2: kind of disturbing because there's so many books on the topic. Yeah, Yeah, that's not being hidden.
3: The managing skill set doesn't necessarily translate into being a good teacher and a good coach. Sometimes you're going to have even the internal relationship you would have with the sellers on your team, it's going to everyone communicates differently with every single individual you come in and come across in your life. So because of that, certain people are going to get maybe more favorable treatment and it might be important to have a more unbiased sales enablement team coaches who would be more involved in that aspect of the job. So managers can actually manage to the effectiveness metrics like win rate, that we know they're not today. None of my managers have ever talked about win rate. None of my managers have ever probably even tracked how often their sellers are winning qualified opportunities once it's gone into a proposal stage. I don't think they would even know the answers to those questions.
1: For the most part, they don't, surprisingly. They'll tell you they know. I had one client I had this conversation with his, oh yeah, I know the win rate. I said, okay, good. What is it? We're just on an average win rate for them as a company. Give us a number. Wasn't even close. Wasn't even close when you really dug into it. And we know, this is, This sort of happens at so many companies. It's largely sort of managed by anecdote and to the point Mark made before is the data can help you. Simple things. So we've talked about on the show before is one of our sponsors is closed, who's one of the leaders in doing win-loss analyses for companies why wouldn't you, if you're a revenue team, so often this ends up in sort of the hands of marketing to do win-loss analysis is why as a sales organization, why aren't you embracing this, right? Going out, you know, every opportunity that you win or lose, finding out why, right? Because closed has some great data. I said that they did a study and they said that when reps enter one reason for win or losing, in this case is mostly for losing when they're losing deals. Uh, and they compared the reps answers with that of the buyers. The reps were right 15% of the time. Yep. I mean, 85% of the time, reps, for one reason or another, <laughs> were unaware or maybe even clueless about why they lost a the deal. I mean, think about that, right? And so here we have this, these tools, and does it, close, for example, a company that does this. If I were a sales leader these days, I would I'd be married to this type of capability. I'd want to know in as real time as possible. Every time we won a deal or lost deal, why? So we can go out and either avoid the mistakes going forward or replicate what we did well before.
3: I think Julie talked about it earlier, at least in software sales and SaaS. The product-led growth movement has really made sales teams think, if we just take steps out of this sales process, we can really shorten the sales cycles. And (laughs) if anything, it just slows it down by a large amount, and the salespeople are not really going through a rigorous assessment process with the buyer in order to determine what problem they're solving, how they've tried to solve it in the past, what are the alternatives to solving it, the consequences of an action. And because of that, they get to the end and the buyer is like, well, everyone looks the same." I'm either gonna buy on price or I'm gonna buy the preferred vendor, the IBM, that I won't get in trouble for buying because of the brand. And the AEs go to President's Club thinking, great, but a lot of that was territory and timing and brand. And working for startups, I know that I need to be quite a bit better than a lot of account executives and sales professionals because ultimately it is a trust profession and it's a marginal difference in terms of how much value we add for that buyer. And they are going to ultimately want to work with the people who add the most value to their lives. So I think we have. And now
1: a message from Closed, an often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as Closed Lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked Closed Lost in the CRM and the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlostoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Allego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Allego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing, sales, and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com slash demo. That is alego.com slash demo. Talks about value on the show. Julie, <laughs> name your whole organization, value selling.
0: And the interesting thing is there's two dynamics to value right there's first of all, there's the business value that somebody's going to have to understand to justify that they can spend the money and i I don't care if it's budgeted, I don't care if it's not budgeted. Someone has to say, yes, we're going to spend ten thousand dollars to solve this hundred thousand dollars headache, and I vetted it and I went through it, and that's a good investment for us to make great, right. but beyond that. It's the personal value of the individual. And Andy, if you're my my client and you work with Mark, I need to understand what's important to each of you because the subtlety becomes in the difference of one of you might be motivated for quality of life and the other one might be motivated to get the next promotion, but you're both motivated for something. And the salesman mm-hmm. can establish enough trust to understand the individual's Businesses don't make decisions, people do. And that's where the complexity comes in right now. Selling isn't complex, buying is complex because you're trying to get teams of 10, 15 people that can't agree on where to go to lunch to agree on what vendor to buy from. And I it's think that that complexity there.
3: And I think uh, in The Jolt Effect, a great book, they mentioned that 60 to 75 percent of all change management initiatives fail and it is because of what julie just said that there are so many competing priorities political agendas within an organization that you have to earn that attention and the attention of Mm -hmm. multiple stakeholders in every Mm -hmm. single sales opportunity or you're just going to be very easy to ghost for lack of a
2: Part of the, the my practice is I, I coach, right? I attend Zoom calls with reps that are struggling. I attend Zoom calls with good reps, right? And by and large, they're talking way too much. They're not asking good questions. I had to create a course. I call it Conversations That Lead to Revenue. I'm embarrassed at how basic it is. How do you build rapport? Hey, Andy, I see on LinkedIn, you wrote an article about this, and we talk a little bit. Discovery. Talk to me about another number of people in my industry are telling me this is a challenge. How are you guys overcoming that? And then I use Bant for qualifying, right? It's better than nothing. It's been around since, what, the 80s. They're skipping every one of those, and they're jumping into what some people are referring to as pitch slapping, right? They just jump right into the pitch.
1: One of my favorite phrases, by the
2: way. Yes. And I tell people, you've all had it happen to you. I just spoke at a, a PE conference and they're like, what do you mean? Oh, come on. You're sitting down to dinner at six o'clock, Verizon calls, and oh, by the way, you're a Verizon customer and they're trying to sell you Verizon. I don't even know if the person breathed on the other end of the line, right? They, yeah. they just jump right in and they, they're playing a numbers game. They're doing what they were told to do.
1: But the thing is, we're perpetrating that though. There was an article I read last week or a post I read last week on LinkedIn that that by a couple of relatively well-known names that I won't name check on the show, but they said, hey sellers, you need to know the answer to all of your discovery questions before you ask them. I
2: think I read that.
1: The advice was act like a lawyer. Don't ask a question. Yeah, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's one of the stupidest things I'd ever read. Right? There goes curiosity. There goes curiosity. It's like the customer wants you to ask them questions they don't know the answers. So they don't know what to ask themselves. If you, I was just like, oh my God, and this is the problem because, yeah, we have big names, yeah, thought leaders, people follow, advocating. You don't need curiosity. Some of these That's same the people for, go ahead. I
0: think Discovery has done such a bad rap because people are asking questions that they should know the answer to. And then the person you're calling on feels like, well, this was a waste of time. Next time, look at my LinkedIn and go to my website before you, you call me. The furious salesperson that we're talking about, these high performers, they go beyond that. They ask the thought-provoking questions that get to insight and, and not challenge somebody's what they're doing, but get them challenged thinking that says, wait, there may be a different way, or maybe I haven't thought about this the right way, or maybe I can lean in and learn something here too, because discovery now is two ways. And that's why sales reps are so mm-hmm. frustrated. They're used to, I'm, I've got my whole list of 25 questions. I'm gonna call on Mark, I'm gonna ask him the questions. Check. I got great answers. Okay, Mark, when's the next meeting? And Mark's like, yeah, I'm busy. I'm going on vacation for the next six months, so I'll be back with you. Don't call me now, call you, right? And it's because there's no mutual value for them and people spend their time before they spend their money. So if you're not adding value, forget it. I don't have time to teach a sales rep that's not paying my bills right now. I do have time to teach a sales rep. That's the business I'm in, mean, but you get what <laughs> I'm saying. Let's be clear about right?
1: that, yes, yes. You have time to train a sales of well, to say, <laughs> your business, yes. And a lot of it's tough,
2: tough
0: in sales level, right now. I forward to my VP of sales and say, call that sales leader and say, we can help fix that. Because this poor individual is not going to get anywhere if, if I'm indicative of the behaviors they have with others. And
3: not just that, but this entire topic reminds me of transactional analysis and the idea of okay not okay and we all are seeking for psychological okayness and with that what makes a prospect feel unsafe overly prepared rapid and polished responses to everything that they might ask about or question and it's exactly that type of thinking only ask these questions don't venture into areas that you don't really know the answer because you're going to show that you're inept but buyers generally will answer questions when they really feel like that seller is looking out for them and Mm -hmm. they genuinely want to know how should i be working with you because you are unique i'm not just talking to a chief technology officer i'm talking to a person who happens to be a chief technology officer and each one is different back in the 90s we taught five whys.
2: What a terrible question to ask. Why are you doing it that way? Immediately, they're on the defensive. I teach salespeople to use how and what? Yeah, that's what a consultant would do. And again, I mentioned that I I just spoke at an event in San Diego. And what the people enjoyed most was how and what questions? How would a consultant call on your customer? If you could pull that off? talk maybe 20, 30% of the time with really good questions. By the nature of your questions, they're gonna decide whether they can trust you and whether or not you're competent. The sale's yeah. gonna happen, but this whole conversational intelligence, they wanna get on their cell phone and just start texting, right? It's like a lost art, so I'm having a lot of fun with it. And when people get in, in it, my only advice is make it your own. Don't talk like Mark, don't talk like Andy. I'll give you a framework, but make it your own. Make it sound conversational and authentic.
1: Yeah, well, that's a, a, a big issue that yeah, we can get to maybe another episode, which is, yeah, how the, the technology is being used. We have all this great sales technology that exists, and unfortunately, when you look at the results that's being generated by the industries that are using this technology the most, they're not very good, right? When no. we look at SaaS as an industry, win rates are in the toilet, have been it's the way it sort of the function of the structure the way we structured that business, and yet we just use these tools to, in a way, to make people comply to a certain way of doing things as opposed to helping them become the best version of themselves. And I think this is this gets back to the coaching issue, right? Because the coaches and the managers are lazy. We I just want you to be like Mark, right? Or I want you to be like Julie. You know, listen to how their calls, listen to what they're doing. And so saying, all right, let's listen to it now. Let's go through one of your calls and. Let's compare, how could we use parts of that? How would you say this, right? How would you phrase this? Yeah, we wanna you know, use the technology in a very broad brush way, cookie cutter approach, rather than saying, look, how do we use the technology, to help you become the best version of you? It takes more time as a manager to use it that way.
0: It, it, it and, totally does. And some sales reps are getting lazy now because of the technology. I don't have to take notes anymore. I don't even have to listen. I'm going to get the yeah. transcript so the second we hang up. So I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to take that transcript, make sure there's no misspellings and send it to you as follow-up and they failed to understand.
1: Yeah. Well, there was a study that came out right at the beginning of the pandemic, <clears throat> even before we were by necessity, we were all forced to use zoom and, and all these other calling technologies and what they found, I forget where this came from, but what the results of the study were is that actually people that had conversations on the telephone were able to uh, communicate more effectively and listen and receive information more effectively than you were over a video call. And part of it was not just not being distracted by the video, but also just the nuance, right? You're paying attention. You're hearing nuance that you don't necessarily hear otherwise. Maybe it's whether it's through processing loss or whatever. But yeah, it's like to your point, Julie, I think you're absolutely right is People sort of, one of my you know, favorite phrases these days, is, yeah, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of experiencing that in in spades, I think in sales is, is, yeah, take a step back. It's not how you use the technology in a broad, it's not a broad brush, it's how do you use it to help the individual? Well, well the, the, the t- t- sales tech has grown
2: significantly since 2016. But sales close rates have significantly declined. Last year was the first year more people missed their number than hit it. So there's a disconnect somewhere, right? And I think it's, I think it's a combination of hiring people and training people for the skills of sales, but they also just don't, they can't afford to skip the steps. I can't emphasize that enough. It it might be a, a time for another podcast. But it's going to get really ugly here this fall. You can say you heard it here from me, right? All right. <laughs> you didn't have to be I'm all in. that good in sales <laughs> last year. If you had stock and your competitor didn't, you, you hit your numbers. But guess what? Everybody got caught up. The demand has decreased in most industries. And you have to sell again. Well, selling is like a muscle. If you haven't used it in a while, you're going to be rusty.
1: Well, this is, yeah, I I, I think you're right. The tech recession started happening really about a year ago, 12 months. So those people in the SaaS world, they've been experiencing this where, yeah, we grew at all costs. We had endless amount of funding. Here we go. And then suddenly the party's over and yeah, your 18% win rate just doesn't cut it anymore.
3: I think the giant disconnect, huge misunderstanding we have of buyers and buying is that sales leaders designed for efficiency of the interaction. They're buying all these sales technologies. They're buying endless tech to help their sellers be more efficient. And the only thing the buyer cares about is the effectiveness of that change management initiative.
2: Well, and you you mentioned win-loss. What an insightful thing. If you want to invest in something, invest in win-loss. A lot of my smaller manufacturers just simply can't afford it. So I do it for him. And when you ask a salesperson or you look in the CRM, why'd we lose the sale? The entry said our price was 30% too high. It's never 10 or 11. It's always 30, right? Well, guess what? When I interviewed that buyer, by the way, it was the customer's third largest customer. He didn't say price. Oh yeah. He says, I didn't think he was listening. I didn't think he totally understood what I was trying to do. So I went with somebody else.
1: The buyer's experience. This is the data. Don't get me started because every episode I get into a little bit of rant about this. Is But yeah, the data is very clear. Gartner's most recent report, one of the more recent reports earlier this year about the nine most important factors influencing a buyer's decision. Product and price weren't on it at all. It's about how the buyer's experiencing working with the seller because there's this assumption, certainly in the tech world, and I think it's true in other markets as well, is A competitive product at a competitive price is your entry into the door
3: we assume you have that working with you andy (laughs) plugging you as a trader and and in my career something we've talked about is just how transactional approaches don't work today and we need to sell like we don't have a product because it truly isn't that important until we've really uncovered those underlying motivations for the prospect to change the cost of inaction what problems they're trying to solve, what dreams and ambitions they're also trying to trying to, trying to meet.
1: Yeah, their problems have nothing to do with your product. And that's and you're absolutely right. This is something that... It's personal as well as professional,
3: right? Yeah. yeah. And
2: you had mentioned AI and I hope we have ch- time to talk about it. I was asked to speak at a private equity conference on AI, right? Well, I'm not an AI expert. I'm a sales
3: guy, right?
2: So I did a little bit of research and I'm like, If your salespeople are just answering the phone and taking orders, if they're just calling people and doing transaction, their jobs are in jeopardy to AI because they're not adding any value. But if your salespeople are doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is understanding customer problems, challenges, goals, and helping them solve them, I don't know any AI that can do that. So, again, I, it's interesting. Everybody's thinking AI is going to be a silver bullet to sales. No. It's interesting. There's, there, it's a tool, but it's never going to take the place of having a good conversation with another executive.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole in AI. But I, I think I agree with you. And I think the, the guest on a previous episode I was recording, I summed it best, which is, hey, the humans can become more important. Not less important in the Absolutely. AI world, because the AI experiences are going. as we've seen this already with use of AI. It's I don't want to say lowest common denominator, but it's got a certain sameness to it. A certain there will be a commonality of your experience dealing with uh, AI systems. The differentiations can be the human and yes. the conversations you have and the value you bring. So, well, unfortunately. I wish we could go down that rabbit hole. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but great conversation. Yeah. I really enjoyed you guys uh, joining me here today. Before we jump, we will just tell people how to connect with you. Julie, how do people get in touch with you?
0: I am not hard to find. My website is valueselling.com. I am on LinkedIn often find me there, Julie Thomas. And in addition to Mark, my new book value selling the power of value selling is going to be released on September 20th so I'll give a shameless plug would love for you to that's why you're here or wait till the September 20th uh, release and grab your copy
2: perfect perfect Mark yeah and you can find me on LinkedIn Mark Allen Roberts the reason I use my middle name isn't to make my mom happy but the world's most famous streaker is named Mark Roberts so I don't want anybody to get to the wrong website Oh, you're um, saying what you're saying. That's not you. That's not helping me in okay. any All way, right. you know, All right. and if if you want to find me, Google fix sales problems. My website's typically number one in the world. Julie, if you send me your book, as you can tell, I'm a book addict, right? I'll be happy to write a review for you. My new book, Driving Explosive Growth. You're written a review for my book. I actually have your book. <laughs>
1: Have you written a review for
2: it yet? Not yet, I need to all do right. that. But yeah, I, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Please reach out and I'd love to meet you. Excellent. And Mitchell, I
3: don't have a book for anyone to read yet. You but, will.
1: I'm there, my friends, you will.
3: But you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Mitchell Kasperzik. and the last name just how it sounds. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. Uh, all it's <laughs> no vowel, <laughs> all consonants. Yeah. Good luck finding me.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Perfect. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining me and uh, look forward to having you back again sometime in the future. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this program. If you're enjoying this new podcast format, a relatively new podcast, uh, if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple or Spotify, it'd really be helpful because that helps us get discovered by more listeners. I want to thank my guests today, Julie Thomas, Mitchell Kaspershik, and Mark Roberts for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The WinRate Podcast with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. Over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive my weekly newsletter titled Win Rate Wednesday. Each week, you receive, on Wednesday, one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates and a bunch of other great sales advice, too. To subscribe, visit AndyPaul.com. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.